Welcome to Sportonomics presented by Uncle Charlie. I'm Tyler Webb. And I'm Jake. And today, Jake, we'll be talking about NIL collectives. We'll chat with sports tech founder Chris Salisbury on the future of sports media. And at the very end, you and I will be competing in a draft of MLB expansion cities. But first, MLB is sort of having a moment right now, Jake. The league just announced a really promising attendance numbers, streaming and social numbers for the 2023 regular season, which included a 9.6% increase in attendance, the league's best mark since 2017, as well as a six-year reduction in the median age of an MLB ticket buyer as compared to 2019. MLB TV also beat last year's record-setting streaming numbers by 9%, and the league hit a record total of 6 billion, that's billion with a B, social media views. This is in large part thanks to the new rule changes, which led to a 24-minute reduction in average game times this year, bringing them down to just 2 hours and 40 minutes, the league's lowest since 1985. However, it's not all sunshine and rainbows for Major League Baseball, because they're going to have to spend the offseason sorting out local TV rights as regional sports networks like Bally Sports go out of business, affecting 14 different teams. And as you know, uh, two of the teams already had to have their broadcast taken over midseason by MLB due to Bally just lapsing in payments. And this will reportedly result in a significant revenue decrease for all clubs as these annual media rights distributions get severely reduced as they figure out where to air their games next. MLB is also hoping to carry over this record-setting year and momentum into the most important time of its season, the playoffs. But early indicators are mixed as teams like the Rays have struggled to get more than 19,000 people out to a wildcard playoff game. But Jake, given the full benefit now of hindsight on this MLB regular season, what grade would you give the league on their performance this year? B plus. Good job, MLB. Um, I mean, can't can't give them an A because, um, you know, just give them an opportunity to to grow into that for next year. Maybe get an A minus next year. But Fair. all things considered, I think uh, I think things things went really well for them. They are in the middle of the regional sport next net, networks battle, and I think. Of all the sports leagues, they probably have to deal with that the most. I also think they're the most equipped to to take it on. Like they've they've been investing in the infrastructure needed to take over all that stuff for the last like twenty or thirty years, whereas everybody else was just kind of following along with with what they did. So um, in that respect, like they're really well positioned to um, take over any lapses in media coverage that 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 might take place. And I think they're actually okay with it. Like I don't think they necessarily feel like they need the regional sport networks anymore. Um, I also think that they're in a interesting position now where they need to figure out what is their core business. At the end of the day, the Mm -hmm. product is baseball, but the way that they sell that product, I think, is changing. And I'm not sure if the in-person or um, digital presentation of that product is what is most enticing to to fans nowadays and it, it you know it, at the end of the day it's probably a little bit of both like i've felt more inclined to go to a baseball game in minnesota here more so in the last probably seven days because the twins are in the playoffs and, and winning for the first time in 20 years um, and so I, I felt more inclined to do that in the last seven days than i have in the last probably three years whereas i was just fine watching it from home um in the three years leading up to that and so I just think it's a, they're in an interesting spot because they need to figure out. Um, maybe they don't. Maybe it's okay that they have both, but they they have an opportunity to figure out what their core business is, like the actual 
ticketed game or ticketed event or the digital experience that they bring to people. Yeah, I, I do agree with you in the sense that it can be both. I think we're often trapped in this corner of like a binary decision, but with organizations that are this big, sure. they have yeah. unlimited human capital and resources to throw out both problems. But Seems- I like how you presented this. So let's break it down into two areas because I think as MLB looks forward, they do have those sort of two areas to think about. The first mm-hmm. being, where do their games get aired? And their mm-hmm. second being, what can they do from an in-person or just, I'll call it like a structural standpoint to keep their game evolving forward. So to attack that first point of where do their games get aired, I really see the MLB as having two options. You described they did a great job building up their owned resources and channels, MLB TV sort of being the the, the pillar channel there, to where they were able to pick up uh, two teams. It was the Padres and I believe it was the Diamondbacks that had Bally completely pull out on them in the middle of the season. And MLB had to pick up the distribution um, for those teams. And so we sort of got an early indication of what an arrangement like that could look like. And so MLB TV charges $19.99 per month for you to get access to watch one team. Um, the Padres, for instance, were making in the neighborhood of $60 million per year from Bally Sports. And so the reverse math there, let's say they keep a, a 1999 price point to watch the Padres for the entire year, you need to sell about three million subscriptions to get your money back on you know something that would be equal to a $60 million revenue distribution from um, from Bally Sports, which doesn't feel impossible. You know, I, I think three million is probably a little high, but if you expand that, not only, you know, the, the regional sports networks were sort of bound to the cable region that they were in. So it was like the greater San Diego area in this case. But if you have a streaming product, you're probably going to loop in more people that are fans across the country. And so it's not crazy to think that the Padres could have three million paying fans across the world. You know, maybe the Padres are a bad example because they're one of the smaller brands in baseball, but you get the idea. The second option I see is where some NBA teams are interestingly going. Mm -hmm. Um, The Jazz being one of them, the Phoenix Suns being another. Uh, Interestingly, the Suns were obviously in the market affected by the Valley Sports pullout, Um, but they're opting, the Jazz and and the Suns are opting to make their games free for non-nationally televised games, which means if you have an antenna attached to a TV, which is like 25 bucks at your local Menards, uh, you can get all the games aired over you know broadcast channels um, that you can access via an antenna. So mm. the the logic that teams use for this, uh, the Utah Jazz owner um, Ryan Smith talks about how whereas before 1.3 million people were only able to watch their games because that's how many people had a cable package which was supported by whatever regional sports network they were using. Now they have a potential audience of 3.3 million people who can much mm. more easily access their games, which obviously has a bunch of downstream revenue impacts on the business that are outside of just streaming revenue. Um, and then they're also, you know, all creating these services where they can sell um, some sort of streaming service with bonus content. Or maybe if you're out of that geographic region where you could get the games on antenna, you could, you know, pay 10, 20 bucks a month to get the game streamed to you right through the right through the team. So understanding those two options, which sounds most appealing to you, do you think it might be a grab bag of both? I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I think it... It's it's a, a, a grab bag of both, but I think it leans more towards option one. I think okay. right now they're they and when I say they, I mean Major League Baseball and and all of its directors have a and rightfully so a desire to begin to centralize everything and a desire to reap the full benefit of the the content that they have and they, they go through the sure. the never ending cycle of 
value creation, value capture, and you have to find the right balance between how many people can we bring the sport of baseball to and how many people can we get to pay us so they can watch the sport of baseball whenever they want. Um, and so I think for, for MLB, it's how do we, how do we do both of those things and pull the levers as hard as we absolutely can? And they've done a great job. It seems this year of pulling the exposure lever. And now next year, they're probably going to say, Hey, like we did all these great things to get more people in front of the game last year. Now, how can we get more people to pay for it? Right. Um, because my guess is on, on the, um, the revenue side of things, they probably saw an uptick in terms of, of, uh, in terms of revenue on on that side of things, but um, it probably doesn't doesn't match the overall exposure step for step. They're giving away a lot of content for free on social and all the other digital platforms that that they have from the league and also the team level. And so I think they're going to be looking for ways that they can still get the distribution that they have, but also begin to capitalize on the people that are now starting to receive the content. There's actually a really interesting model um, that I saw. There's this company that is buying advertising placements on um, like culturally significant websites. So like I'll use Barstool Sports as an example. If you go to Barstool or like Bro Bible or any of those big media platforms that have websites or apps, they're buying like advertising space. And within the advertising space, they have an embed for like sports video content. And then what they do is they resell the advertising space basically. So they have a a subset of, of advertisers below them. And I think what they're trying to do is just match the amount that they're spending on the advertising placement with those sponsors. So they're reselling it to just basically break even on that. And then they're trying to convert people on the back end of it to be subscribers to their platform. And so I think MLB could probably do things in a similar vein where they're they're just basically utilizing the distribution of these other channels and they're not giving all the way all the content away for free but they're able to break even on the advertising spend and then convert people into subscribers in the back end of it i think they'll be looking for ways to to do that where they get the best of both worlds yeah i i think there probably is some freemium aspect to this when you describe like some you know upsell into a subscription like what might that look like for MLB? Would that be upselling into game, co- like actual game content, or or do you first see like bonus content living there? You know what what part remains free, what part remains paywall? Like how how would you be thinking about that? Yeah, I, I would I would say all the bonus content would probably be free. Um, the stuff that allows for the storytelling to happen and the personalities and um, the personas of their players to develop takes place like i think all of that should and forever will be free um Mm. and then i think on the gated side of things it's the live sports like that's that's the creme de la creme of what they're they're trying to get people to engage with and interact with and it's it is the i guess ultimate or the climax of the personas that they've been building through really all of the content that they have. And so I think that that's how I would probably approach it. Now, maybe you could take the exact opposite strategy and it could work just fine, but that's how I would probably approach it. In terms of how to get it to work, man, it's really hard to do with without pissing a lot of people off. Um, sure. I mean, if, if you look at it like how the UFC looks like it looks at it, you maybe have the prelims for free or we'll call it free. You, get, you have the prelims on a standard broadcast channel and you have to do order pay-per-view for the main event or the the final two fights on the card 
um, Major League Baseball would probably get in a lot of trouble if they tried to make that their model um, with their fans. If they just said, hey, like, we'll give you six out of seven games from your team, but right. we're just going to take away the game that you really want to watch. But you, you're going to have to pay for that if you want to watch that one. So that's just not what their fans are used to. Um, and so they're going to need to figure out a way to, I guess, forecast out what the total cost of a single season might be and just bundle that into a subscription that somebody can pay for. I think that's got to be their model, and they need to figure out a way to maximize the number of subscriptions that they can give out. Um, that's That would be, in my opinion, their best approach. It's what their, their subscribers, their fans are used to. They're used to paying like once a year, once a month for access to all the content, and then they should never, ever black out a game or restrict somebody from being yes. able to see the content. Like, that just... I, I've never understood that. Um, I know there are like business and political reasons inside the boardroom to why that happens, but from like a fan's perspective, it is not uh, not a fan's first mentality. I think if you, uh, if you're giving fans access to team's content, it should be all the content from the team, at least the live content. Yeah, well, a large reason for those blackouts were because of regional sports networks that right. had bought the rights to the games. Right. But you know, I think there's an argument to be made that a league in a position like MLB could really benefit from just giving its games away for free. Um, and I think the logistics of that are made a little bit harder just given how many games they have. You know, it's easy for the NFL to only take up a couple time slots once a week on a Sunday. MLB has so many games. You could make the argument that these networks would be happy for the live programming. Um, you know, what else are they going to run? Like another daytime soap opera or, you know, television hey. talk show. Like, no offense to my soap opera fans out there, but I, I do think top of the packing order would be live sports. Um, I think about this even, Jake, with some of the smaller clients that we work with. I won't name specifics, but when you talk about smaller like tiers of professional sports, I think it's a bigger benefit to the growth of your sport if you can just make the content as easily accessible and as cheaply accessible you know, for free as possible and not try to what seems like grab over breadcrumbs because you want to make sure that you're monetizing each step of the consumer action. Like obviously there are parts of your business that you have to monetize, but understanding and maybe picking those battles a little bit more intentionally, I think could be helpful. And if MLB's goal is growth, it, again, it comes back to what your, what your goal is. If MLB's goal is growth and to get people engaged into the longer form content that they have, that is their live broadcast, it, I think it could make sense for them to have more games be aired for free over, you know, broadcast antenna television. Um, if their goal is to double down on revenue, which I have a feeling it might be, then I have a feeling they'll go with the the model of, you know, charging 20 bucks a month for for people to be able to watch their games. No, that's yeah. just going to come down to the objective. I don't think they'll do that this year. I think they'll do it like two years from now. Um, reason being, I think they want people to get used to being able to consume the content before they, they, uh, they shut the floodgates on it. <laughs> yeah. That's fair. I, I think there's a lot. We, we could go down a whole rabbit hole here. I'm, I'm sure I'd, I'd be really curious just to hear the the thoughts. You know, these are probably never conversate, no conversations that we're ever going to be privy to, but there has to be some sort of spectrum or value analysis that they're doing where it's like, oh, yeah. Okay. You know, here's the amount of people that would pay this for 20 bucks a month. Here's the amount of value we could extract out of giving it away for free. Um, and, and I would make the argument if I was in that room that there's a lot of, I said earlier, like downstream monetizable effects that you could see from having your product be aired for free. And maybe those aren't 
maybe that's not revenue you make in the next five years. Maybe those are only effects that you see in the next 20 years. But I think I could make the argument that it would be worth it to make your games as easily and cheaply accessible as possible. But yeah, as we know, these rooms are often filled with older guys who have a much shorter term view on their return on investment. And so necessarily not, yeah, not, not going to be the case. Yeah. Not, not even necessarily. I think, I think one thing to, to note is the importance of the regional sports network collapse that happened this year. I think it was actually extremely beneficial for major league baseball. Sure. Because one, like, they were able to get a huge warning sign that this is inevitable, this is coming, it's happening, and it's just a matter of time. And two, they were able to figure out the percentage of people that would come over onto their platform from a regional sports network when they no longer had access to that regional yeah, they sports these network. Little test mar- they had these little test markets. In in real time. And I'm sure they already have data on like viewership in those markets anyhow from the regional sports networks. And so they're, e- they're able to see how that translates over to the individual streaming platform. And based off of that, they can have some much better estimates on the number of people that might transfer over into a... Um, MLB only viewing experience. And I have no doubt that they're talking about those things and whether they're talking about them seriously or not, they know, they know the data points and they know, um, if they decide to pull the lever at any point, they absolutely could. Yeah. I think if I were to make an official prediction on the streaming aspect of this conversation, I have a feeling that whether it be bundled up into MLB or teams specifically, Mm -hmm. they're going to take the model of charging on a, you know, per month or per year basis. Um, you, you've seen this being bundled up with the the Rangers, the New, the New Jersey Devils, the New York Knicks. They created like some sort of MSG streaming product where you could pay mm-hmm. literally down to the game. Um, mm-hmm. And I think they're going to try to recapture some of that value they're losing because the, you know, the big undertone here as we talk about the difference between a, an objective of growth or an objective of revenue is that as these regional sports network contracts go defunct, Teams are losing out on 60, I think I read that the, the Los Angeles Angels RSN contract was something like over $100 million a year. That's a ton of money to be giving up. And that's money, especially in baseball, which is a non-salary cap league, that <laughs> is really important when you're trying to build rosters and compete for championships. And so recapturing any amount of that value, I think, is going to be important. And so it's probably wishful thinking to think that they're just going to give it away for free and you know take a, a 10-year view on this because for a lot of GMs and owners and managers and players like they they don't have the benefit of taking a, a 10-year view on a lot of this kind of stuff and they you know they have to show results and show returns much sooner than that and so I think my prediction would be that they're gonna whether it be at the team or the league level just bundle all this together and you know start charging 20 bucks a month for it we'll see we'll see the second part of this Jake maybe we can touch on quickly is that the league a huge factor for the for the growth of baseball this year were these rule changes that you know, were mm-hmm. introduced at the beginning of the year and mm-hmm. have shortened game time. I think it's interesting. I'd have to double check what an NFL game time is, but you know, I, I think we're nearing in on close to like a four hour broadcast for an NFL game. And nobody seems to have quarrels over that. A lot of that is probably due to the fact it's only once a week and the NFL for whatever reason is just a much more like engaging sport, even though I would argue that the playtime, like there's a lot of downtime in, in football too, which is what they're trying to eliminate in baseball. But regardless, that was an initiative that uh, MLB undertook this year was to increase the action and decrease the playtime, and they've done that. I, I, it's it's hard to argue otherwise. Do you think there's something that they can do further from a 
I'll call it a structural standpoint to move the game forward? Or do you think that maybe they should just sit on this for a little while? Because there certainly is a point, right, where they've gone too far and sort of jumped the shark. Um, but no, I think they're just, I think they just need to sit on this for a little while. I, okay. base, baseball is not a sport that is uh, super welcome to change. And I think yeah. that the pitchforks were certainly started, like they were being pulled out of the sheds when they announced the, the pitch clock changes. And uh, I think people are just starting to put them back into their sheds now as they've uh, had a revival. And I think a lot of more people have just really enjoyed baseball this year than, than they have in the past for probably a lot of reasons, more than just the, the pitch clocks themselves. And um, I, I, think, uh, I think they just need to wait a little while. Uh, the pitchforks are not back in the shed just yet. So let's, let's just take this one um, as it comes and uh, and see see where it gets us in the next few years. I think the next major change that they'll, they'll be able to make and I think they should really consider to make and pretty much every other sport is probably thinking about this right now, but the umpiring and officiating, um, mm-hmm. figuring out how to make that a tech-enhanced version of what it currently is. Uh, I think a lot of it's already happening at lower levels of baseball where they're doing a lot of testing and they're trying to figure out what the system is that will work. I don't think there will ever be a world where there are no umpires. Um, I agree. But that'll be the next big thing for them is um, enhancing that. And I think I think you just you, you just reduce the number of uh, pissed off fans that there are um, yeah. by doing that. And you uh, save a lot of umpires' lives by doing that. <laughs> Yeah, my, my my favorite iteration of that, which I believe is being tested out in the fall league, um, which just started again for MLB, is the basically like a live challenge system that gets broadcast mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. the jumbotron of the stadium, where a batter could literally have a strike three call. There maybe there's a ball four, and the pitcher or the batter wants to turn around and they essentially tap their head. And on the screen, the technology that could be used, you know, for robotic umpires in real time can just pop up the last pitch. And it can right. definitively say that was a ball, that was a strike. And, you know, maybe you only get it. But at the end of the day, the, the ump still has a decision. So if he disagrees right. with it, he can say, nope. And that's well, okay. I, I don't. I don't know if that was the case. I think if the batter chooses to, like, appeal or challenge or whatever they call it, I think whatever is shown on screen and, you know, said is what oh, the final maybe. decision is. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I know I know with FIFA they had they gave the, uh, the on-field official the final decision on it, even if the... I saw screws that showed something else. So yeah, I, I think it was. I think the baseball version was less of like a, you know because their instant replay does now exist in baseball where you can challenge something and the ump can go to a screen and they kind of like review it and there's somebody in a New York office somewhere who's also reviewing it and they decide and there's still like a human aspect to that like you could still disagree with their decision even upon an instant review. I think what this is trying to do is like integrate as closely or as far as I think they could go with some sort of robo-ump, which was tested at lower levels of baseball, mm-hmm. where the robo-ump is not calling the whole game, but they're calling specific moments where, you know, maybe there's like a more objective call that needs to be made. But regardless, on I think call. that's, yeah, I think that's a good option. Um, I think another great option, this is something that will never happen, but shortening the season to increase urgency, that seems to me to still be the biggest problem for MLB is the fact that there's 162 games and you kind of, hit a lull in the middle of the season. And if you wanted to, again, this would be another, like, have to take the long time. I don't think it'll change that. The short term I don't think it'll change running. that. I agree. They're not going to. But I think well, that, like, that could be a big one. The, it's, it's because of the way the rest of the league is set up, right? Like, the 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 
smaller market teams get subsidized by the bigger market teams, and the bigger market teams are selling out every single game. And so it doesn't matter how many games they play; they're going to they're going to continue to sell out every single one. So, uh, for for every game you remove from that, it takes a small piece away from from the overall pie. So that would be right. That'd be a hard decision to make. I understand the sentiment, though. Yeah, and I also get frustrated for baseball because as soon as the best part of the season happens, you have like <laughs> I think we both experienced it now that the Twins are in the playoffs, where they're playing at like three thirty on a you know Tuesday because they have to fit in these broadcast rights and you know. Well, and then there's also there's also football happening. That's now, exactly now. It. Yeah basketball and hockey is happening and, the, and theoretically they should wrap it up by the second week in October and that would be a well they should wrap great. it up by Labor Day because once the NFL starts I think bar, like you look at some of these numbers at the NFL polls it's for a Thursday night football game that's behind an Amazon paywall it's still triple the amount of like what is a really compelling MLB playoff game and that's just yeah. I, I think that's just a lot of uh, lost momentum they kind of seem to hit the skids a little bit which uh which is kind of an issue. Do you, do you think there's anything from a marketing standpoint, Jake, that we'll wrap it up here? You know, I mentioned in the opener that the Rays hardly drew 20,000 people. Um, there is this difficulty that you and I have experienced where the playoffs, there is a certain amount of unpredictability and stuff that you can't plan for. Like, you know, in a season where you have 162 games that you know when and where they're going to be, you can plan and you can market around them. All of a sudden, you're sort of thrown into the fire as an organization where you're like, oh, we're not sure if we're going to play. We're not sure where we're going to play. We're not sure when we're going to play. And that obviously impacts how many people you're able to bring out to the ballpark. Do you think there's, you know, what would be your advice for the teams or the leagues to maybe carry some momentum from the regular season into the playoffs? No, it just takes time. I mean, have have a great, have a great fan experience and have sound marketing principles in place and I guess just start with your blocking and tackling and then um if you want to wander into uh no man's land of doing some more creative things but I mean these MLB isn't markets big enough to sustain a sold out crowd every single night uh and so it's just it's just really hard to do especially when you don't know if uh if if your team is going to be playing or when they're going to be playing or at what time and it's really weird when the game's at like one o'clock now that's at minnesota we haven't really had any success in the last 20 years and we're kind of like the antithesis of this right like we're it's gonna be a sold out game today uh, actually the game's going on right now i think um it's tuesday and the game started at like i think 1 30 maybe it starts at 3 30 i can't remember um but sold out crowd there ha- haven't had a sold out crowd for a playoff game in a long time but that's because we haven't been in a lot of playoff games so yeah, I think a big part of it is carrying on the storyline of whatever your team was during the regular season. Right. Um, it's an easier pitch for the Twins to be like, look, we basically haven't been here for 20 years, you know, the second yeah. round of the playoffs. Like, is it, you guys? should come out and support. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, whereas, like, I'm always surprised, and there are a lot of intangible and uncontrollable things that organizations can kind of lean into or have and to have to get And you have to get all of it right. Like, the more I've thought about it, you have to get literally every single thing right you gotta have the right sure. players you gotta have the right um marketing yeah you gotta have the right sales team you gotta have everything to flow together yeah but it's even like crazy to me that a team like the philadelphia phillies who have had obviously a long history of success and they have the eagles who are currently undefeated in the nfl and yet they still have time and energy for their baseball team you know it's like it's crazy and so maybe to the point of like somebody like the the rays or the rangers or something it's just like 
I, I, you're not communicating well what the value proposition is. Like it's just is not just another baseball game. Like there's a obviously there are stakes built into the fact that it's the playoffs and it's a, like a winner go home environment. But I think there has to be a, a proposition beyond just these are the playoffs and we're in them now. You know what I mean? The, like there has to be a a story that you can tell uh, beyond what time of year it is. Yeah. Fair. Well, if any MLB team out there wants to have us help them tell that story, we're uh, Jake and Uncle Charlie.co. Jake. Wow. Cut let's that. Talk, oh, let's, <laughs> let's talk uh, NIL Collective. That was cringy. That was cringy. <laughs> All right. 85 guys, 85 trucks. You you heard about this thing? I have. So I, I put something about it out about it last week, but the, the Crimson Collective, which is Utah's NIL Collective, landed a deal to get every single scholarship player for the university's football team a one-year lease for a new Ram Bighorn 1500 pickup truck. So these are these are these are entry-level trucks, but a truck to truck, and off the lot, a new Ram is like 35 grand for the model that they're getting. And if you were buying these for the players, that would make the deal worth like. Two point five to like three point four million dollars, so a few million dollars uh, is is what this whole thing would be if the, if they were buying them. Um, so Crimson Collective facilitated it, and they're going to be responsible for covering the lease and insurance payments. Now it's important to note that in reality they've committed to about one seventh of that total price. So the lease payments for that one year, I mean they're gonna they're probably going to distribute it over the course of like a, a five or seven year. Uh, window and so they're not paying the full 2.5 million dollars and the players will be responsible for just the tax payments on those uh, on those trucks that they'll be able to drive so um, while there are a couple of questions that we could talk about here I want to talk about NIL collectives just in general have you have you played around with these at all or, or gotten into the weeds on them I mean I've, I've only really gotten into into NIL collectives in the context of like how things get paid for. And and my knowledge yeah. is like, there seemed to be this weird transition from what was a booster to what is an NIL collective. And I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure they're basically the same thing, but now it kind seems of. like they can play in the pool of athletes a little bit. I also want to mention before we jump into what you're going to say, even if, you know, let's just, most of these kids probably aren't making much more on NAL at the University of Utah past these trucks. And the fact that a That's team dope, like... Dope. <laughs> yeah, it's it's dope. It's great for it would be great. But what I, you know my point is like if you're a uh, if let's say the University of Utah's football program was a was a business that had to pay its players and they were only spending upwards of two two and a half million dollars, which as you explained, they're not even spending that much money on mm-hmm. the talent on the field. Like that's that's a pretty banging deal. So while I think a lot of people look at this and they're like, Holy crap, every player gets a truck, it's like at the end of the day, those are your those are your labor costs and in the context of professional sports or, you know, highly commercialized sports that's not very high yeah i mean ultimately it's like three four five hundred grand that that they'll be they'll be dropping on it it depends on how things go with the trucks i i would imagine that a couple of them are going to get crashed or have some scratches or dents on them and i I look forward to that that story coming out where uh yeah somebody somebody backs their truck into uh into a local bar and and gets a dewey for for uh one reason or another um, but I, th- I just thought it would be interesting to talk about these NIL collectives. Um, there's a really great article on this website. It's called on3.com. It might be called one.com. I don't know. what I don't know. It's It might be like a little play on words. It's on and the number three.com. Um, but they have a really great article that breaks down um, 
what these NIL collectives are, why they exist, and then how they work in collaboration with the athletes and the universities themselves. I think you're very much so right. They're very similar to what a traditional booster was for a university. They can just get a little bit more uh, tactical and they can be a little bit more upfront about the dealings that they're doing with the individual athletes themselves. Like in in the past with, with a booster, like you would have somebody that would donate to the right. university or the athletics department or the specific team. And then the team had the opportunity to do whatever they wanted with it. Um, now, they couldn't pay their players directly, but they could do a lot of other things to support the players. They might build a new facility. They might um, buy a bunch of new gear. They might set them up with equipment that they can use to better themselves or give them better opportunities to um, get a job somewhere or just excel in the field. But now they have the ability through these NIL collectives to um, essentially pay the players directly. And yeah. so a, biz- a business can come in and say, hey, like I would, I would love to be a, a booster for your university and your football team specifically. And by doing so, I would actually like to pay your starting quarterback $1 million per year over the course of the next three years of his career while he's in college. And <laughs> because I'm doing that, he'll probably want to stay. We can't force him to stay and we can't recruit him by saying we're going to pay him a million dollars a year. And there's no contract in place that says that. But just know that if he does come here and he does play, I will be paying a million dollars a year for them yep. to just say one or two words at an event that we have. And that's it. And that's okay. That's that's totally legal now. And so there's like this really interesting uh, limbo period that universities and I mean, I guess specifically college football is going through as they figure out all of the new rules, what they can and cannot do within the gray area of NIL. Um, and so all these NIL collectives at, at universities, I think it's like 97% of u- universities that have like varsity athletics programs have some type of NIL collective, which is incredible um and they so spun up that quickly they they spun up so quickly like some of them like the first one happened within a month of uh, all the nil stuff breaking i believe the first one was down in florida at the university of florida the gainesville where tim tebow went um and then after that the model has just been replicated time and time again and there's there's really two primary reasons that these exist or two primary ways that they operate. So the first one is they operate as like a marketplace. So uh, they'll connect the the athletes with a business or some type of sponsor that wants to promote them. And, and then the other way is they're operating as almost like a secondary holding company for donor funds that can be distributed in a way that's uh, much more lucrative for the athletes themselves. And so they'll just set up a either an LLC or a nonprofit organization that um, has the sole purpose of holding on to money and distributing it to players as they see fit. Um, sometimes that's done through one-off donations. Sometimes that's done through subscriptions. But those those are the primary reasons why why these things exist. I know the Gophers have one. I think it's called Dinky Town Athletes is, yes. is what it is. Um, so set up in a very similar way and they're just a pass-through entity for paying off all of these 
these college athletes. And the school can't do it. The athletics department can't do it. But they can have influence over the decisions that are being made within the NL Collective. So in doing that, you can pretty much do whatever you want as a university and have control over what the NL Collective does. Yeah. When when you dig into this, does it strike you as the most fair way to do it? Or do you feel yourself being like, ah, they should just pay the players? So when you describe this to me and in my research, I think like this just seems like we're halfway to the point where these players just are put on payroll at their university and you know, all of a sudden these football teams have to run a payroll just like an NFL team does. Yeah, I think it's more so like a risk mitigation thing. I think a lot of the universities have no idea what the actual rules are going to be or how they're going to be enforced by NCAA. And the NCAA agrees it that way. They, they want the gray area. They want it to be a little bit ambiguous of like what, what they can and cannot do. And so right. them basically just passing the buck off to a separate entity allows them to say, hey, like we did not actually have anything to do with any of that stuff. You're going to have to take up all of that with this NLL collective, which is technically not even affiliated with our school. If you look at all the names of them, like the foundation, the Wildcats Den, the fund, uh, the Crimson Collective, Dickytown Athletes, like all these things, none of them have the university's name on it for legal reasons. They can't. They literally cannot be affiliated with the university, but all the coloring is the same. All the branding is very, very similar, and it's very clear what the purpose of the collective is. And, and I'm not saying we're there yet, but I'm just saying this seems like we're halfway on our road trip to the point where we're just going to have yep. salary caps and payrolls. We are. We are. I just, I don't think the, the universities felt like they were in a position to make those decisions yet either. Like they just didn't know. Yeah. They had no what idea. Did they want to be. Nor did they <laughs> no, want to be. Right. This, this money's this not great from them. It's great. Yeah. It's great. It's great. <laughs> they, like they're they, still they, able to play the players. And then also like we don't have to pay any of it. Exactly. That's exactly. But, and- I think it's like a, a, a total collusion act here because the NCAA can still convince itself and other people that it has a role to play in this delineation as you just, you know, the gray area that you're describing in NIL, which I think increasingly we're finding out there is no gray area. It's just you can pay the players as long as it's not coming from the university. But yeah. for some reason, the, the NCAA can still convince itself it has relevance or has any sort of authority in deciding what can or cannot be done. But as we're seeing, I think increasingly we're moving towards this model of privatization where or maybe not even privatization, but just universities putting players on payroll. And once that happens, the NCAA's purpose is basically zilch. Yeah, well, not zilch. They, they still, they still, they'll go back to their core purpose of, of, uh, essentially providing the schedule, uh, providing officials and overseeing college sports. And so that, They'll, they'll get out of like the media business and all this other stuff that they have. So got the profitable their businesses. Well, exactly, exactly. Um, but yeah, I don't think I don't think they'll become irrelevant. They're still still a very very relevant organization. Um, but yeah, I think I think we're definitely we're definitely halfway there. Um, the universities at some point will probably just be paying the players, and that's all right. That's that's totally okay. That's just a different model of. The way thing the di- different than what what is working now, but very similar to different models um, in different parts of the world. So uh, it'll be new to us, but not new to the world by any means. No, I think a big holdup on that though is to the same, you know, the same collective delusion that the NCAA or that these colleges can have about 
the fact that the you know they're not paying their players, so this is still amateur sports. I think the second that you decide to put pl- players on payroll at universities, mm-hmm. one from a legal distinction, they're no longer amateurs; they're professionals. But mm-hmm. two, from like a general perception of what we as fans understand college sports to be, I think mm-hmm. that totally Changed. rips the mask off. And I don't know yeah. how they. You know, yeah, I don't think they want to get there. Then they're competing with the NFL, right? And then yes. it's like, you know, what is a positioning? I think it gets really, really confusing. So I, while I think we're probably halfway or maybe even over halfway to the point where I don't think role, we're going to get there. I don't think we're ever going to get there. No, I agree. I think we're broken out on the side of the road now and we're just happy yeah. that we made it this far. Yep. And there's, there's no gas anywhere near us. So that's all right. Um, let's, uh, let's, let's transition into the, the convo. Uh, with with uh, with Chris here, I think sure. this is a good conversation. And to provide context, I uh, Chris has actually reached out to me probably three or four months ago. I talked to him a couple of times about their platform. So I guess I'll let you uh, fill in the the details, Ty. Okay, yeah. So Chris has a background in venture capital, but recently he's made the jump to start a digital sports media platform called Live Take. And the idea of the app is to better facilitate the process of getting your sports takes off and debating people online regarding there. So we had this conversation with Chris about his vision for the app. We frankly pushed back a little bit about how we saw it fitting into the current landscape. And then he describes how he thinks the sports media landscape and environment is going to develop writ large. And at the very end, we got into some sports debates of our very own. Enjoy. All right, Chris, thanks for joining us. Before we hop into debating popular sports topics because that's what live take is is all about we want to get your takes on on some things here could you give the audience just you know a brief 30 second elevator pitch about what live take is and and maybe how they would use it understanding you know you got a lot of sports fans listening right now yeah definitely so we built the live take to you know make sports talk more efficient so bringing all sports opinions to life and that being said our core feature is allowing people to engage in these head-to-head audio video debates there's so much happening in sports 24 7 that to actually break down topics whether they're controversial trending topical is really beneficial for people to just get everything out in terms of an audio and video experience with an audience that can also tune in and, and kind of vote for who they think is winning or who they think is right so you know there's a ton of athletes starting their own podcast there's a ton of people looking to break into the sports industry and Live Take is a really great tool to, to work that muscle and produce a new form of content that's super engaging. Sure. Chris, I was talking to you as we were doing this little pre-episode here. Um, and I talked about, like, in my experience as a creator, that this, it, it seems like a new industry to me of sports content platforms. And I would be curious to hear how you would classify or describe what Live Take is. But it seemed like there were a lot of those types of platforms that really came out of the work, especially ahead of this 2023 NFL season. Um, you know, wh- why do you think, you know, this year or now is such a, a time for these types of platforms? Like, again, I, I, we, we named a couple before we started here, but it seems like there's a lot coming out. Is it something about, you know, how the industry is moving? You know, is there something that happened this year that you think instigated all of this? Like, I love your opinion on that. Yeah, yeah, it's a great point. I think, you know, we're, we're constantly seeing the shift from linear TV to streaming to now fans that are probably in the demographic of 18 to 25 consuming a lot of their sports content on on social. So I think it's a really ripe time for 
people just to consume that quick debate content, which has always been very popular, as you've seen on ESPN, shows like First Take, Pardon the Interruption, Around the Horn, and really just open up the floodgates and give anyone the opportunity to do that. So I think as more startups look at the capabilities of just incorporating audio video elements into a social setting, it's a really, really cool way for fans to not only bond over their shared fandom, but also connect in a way that gives them the opportunity to really showcase their skill set and actually have a place in this dominated industry that's been historically really tough to get involved with. Right. I mean, so you think it's just a part of the natural progression of where sports content is headed and, and how people interact with the brands that, that they like within within the sports world. I think that's definitely part of it and, and kind of adding that social aspect to where you're having a platform where you can form a dedicated audience that's just sports centric, I think is also really valuable. I mean, we've seen the social media giants, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Reddit, they're so general and so much is happening in terms of just not only sports, but politics, pop culture, et cetera, that to have a sports-focused social feel is is a new thing that I think people really appreciate when they just have so many connected interests with, with like-minded people. Sure. I'm going to push back on that for a second, Chris. I, If you're okay with that, I, I feel like these platforms have gotten so good. Let's start the, the, the debate has started. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> I feel like these platforms have gotten so good at segmenting out audiences anyway. I mean, you're right. Like the internet is so big and so vast and there are so many sub communities. Um, you bring up Reddit and I think that's a really good example of how they can effectively segment these sub niches and interest groups into ways where you're only really interacting with the things that you're interested in. And, you know, Reddit does and Twitter to a certain extent does that in a really intentional way where you sort of have to like opt into these communities. You join a a subreddit or you follow people on Twitter that you want to kind of curate your feed in a certain way. But now we even see with Instagram reels and TikTok that just by the nature of your viewing habits and little, you know, things that you do to engage or not engage with pieces of content that these algorithms are getting so good where they'll just kind of start slotting you in to different areas of interest without you even opting into them or, or stating clearly that, you know, that's where you want to be. And like, if you look at my TikTok feed, it's a lot of sports and it's a lot of politics and current events. And those are just things that I'm interested in. Right. So I'm I'm just curious, like, why you feel or if you feel that there was like a, a specific call for people to be like, OK, I want to remove myself from, as you described, like the busyness of the Internet and put myself in a sport specific ecosystem. Like, you know, how do you how do you think about the direction these platforms are moving as compared to yours specifically when it comes to like areas of interest? Yeah, absolutely. I'm not going to discount um, how sophisticated their algorithm algorithms have gotten because you're, you're spot on. You get targeted with things that you directly view or like or watch. So I think that's very fair. But in terms of, let's say you have these sports media majors, journalism majors, people that want to actually have a career in sports, um, they're not always being seen on Twitter or on Instagram or TikTok. Obviously, Tyler, someone like you has built that following up from just being very consistent about their content. But in terms of actually showing how you can think on your feet, how you can formulate arguments, how you can you know, adjust to different things going on in a conversation is something that's very different from these platforms. I think is what I need in this sport. I feel like part of the value proposition for the platform would be it has an increased you know, suite of features or like an elevated suite of features that would benefit somebody looking to have that kind of you know, debate or looking to make that kind of content. Because 
admittedly, you, these platforms that we currently exist on are limited in, in what they can do. You know, like Twitter is notably not a great place to have a well thought out discussion, right? <laughs> You're limited in terms of characters or even TikTok. Like it's hard to resurface or repost or like really go back and forth with somebody just because you're not engaging with content in a way that you've really opted into. Like you just are beholden to the algorithm. So could you describe some of these features that, you know, you think your platform enables people to create content in that way better? Because I, I think that is, to me, seems like the main value proposition here. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, it's it's all about bringing these opinions to life, right? So if I have a strong stance on something and I drop a take on the live take app, um, I'm actually allowing the entire community to either agree with me or disagree with me. So you get a lot of satisfaction off. I'm predicting something about an upcoming game. I have a strong stance on something. And the sports community actually thinks that I'm right about this. And not only that, but then if you are able to get the community to agree with you, we're putting that right on your profile and saying your take has been backed by the community. It contributes to your record. It contributes to your win percentage, which is really fun for passionate sports fans because, I mean, we're all competitive. We all love the statistics and, and kind of growing our uh, skill set in that area. So just having the community also have a say in what you're putting out there, I think is really important in terms of the voting. And also in the debate aspect, just seeing that voting bar fluctuate in real time as you're voicing your opinion is, is a really cool feeling for people to just get solidification that, wow, I can actually do this and um, you know get people to back what I'm saying. I think that's a very cool aspect. And at the end of the day, you either win a live take or you lose it. Historically, sports debates don't really get settled. They're just out there. They're out in the ether, but you don't actually have a win or a loss tied to them. People can throw out absurd takes all day, but you know who's right at the end of the day? Let's let the people decide. Sure. It's, it's often said that you're only wrong about a take when you give up on it. You can, uh, if you sit yeah, on a right. take long enough and, and see it through long enough, there's, there's always a chance it can be right. Yeah, no, exactly. It's uh, no more fizzling out, no hiding on the live take app. If you put something out there, everyone has a vote. Everyone has a chance to, to clap back. And that's probably one of our cooler features, too. On the, on the take speed itself, if you disagree with someone's take, um, you have the ability to challenge them to a live take right then, right there, and, and kind of make them prove themselves. So um, we love that aspect, too. If, if it's two random users, they're then connecting on a whole different level in terms of, I see your post, now let's take this to audio or video and look me in the eye and prove it. <laughs> sure. How do you see the relationship between live take your platform and the existing infrastructure by which these broader like sports debates are happening like right now they happen in, in my opinion in three different ways so the first one is um just friends debating it's yep. it's i'll call it grassroots debates the second one is um they take that and they they move the grassroots over to social so that like somebody on twitter like just posting something off base or maybe not off base just just their take on whatever they think is happening or they post on instagram whatever social platform it is so that would be that'd be two i'd consider that the digital version of of grassers and the third version is these debate focused uh shows so you mentioned yeah. a few of them uh early on and a lot of what they're doing right now is like the live viewership is heading in this direction which is down and to the right and the the social interaction and viewership is actually heading in the opposite direction, up and to the right. And so where do you feel like 
your platform sits in the middle of that transition that's happening and where do you feel like these shows or like i'll call them live takes for lack of a better term uh like the, the current versions of them are are going to end up like do you think those all still exist or do they all end up being something completely different yeah i think i think they'll always have a place just because you know that the talent on those shows are so good at what they do um and and they're there for a reason right they've had long careers to where they've been able to build up this sense of confidence and consistency in terms of just their research what they bring to the table and you obviously have to be a very charismatic person and able to do a sports debate show so i think those will live on in terms of just existing um However, I think that maybe ESPN or some of the major networks might just shift their approach to make it, you know, more digitally friendly for a lot of the younger consumers to view those in a different setting, right? Like no one really has time to sit on their couch and watch first take for an hour anymore. It would be much easier if they could do that on the go or just through their mobile devices, which is also what makes live take and and the other social platforms so special is you have your phone on you at all times and you can just consume, consume, consume. So I think we really lie in terms of the sports content that's currently on social media. Let's escalate that and actually form our own opinions on it rather than just seeing those posts and maybe clapping back at some people in the the comment sections. Um, Actually being a part of those discussions, I think, is that one piece that's missing that we're really filling a void in. Chris, do you see yourself as like a part of a, a spectrum? This is something, you know, Jake and I talk about logical extremes a lot on, on this show where uh, in sports media, for instance, you see the integration of Pat McAfee, who was a digital first show, get looped into ESPN, right? And, and if you take that concept to its logical extreme, I think you could see a lot more digitally native creators, uh, sports creators work their way into like a linear distribution model like ESPN. Or maybe they're, you know, in 15 years from now, there is really no strong linear distribution. And ESPN as a brand is just, you know, encompassing a lot of digital creators or something like that. I The question here is like, I feel like we're getting to the point where digital creators are more important. They're going to become more influential than the linear Stephen A. first take talk shows. Um, right. Do you see yourself as like the logical endpoint of where these sports media or of where sports media is going to end up or do you think there's like a spot further we're going to go or or do you think like how do you think about yourself on that spectrum of sports media being linear shows on ESPN or on one end and you know something like you are on the other end yeah I really think it is heading closer to our direction in terms of just what people love and people want to use right I mean you can go live and produce content on the live take app in a matter of 10 seconds right and that's something that if you're doing via a podcast or a show, there's so much production and, and editing that goes into it that people just want something really easy to use. And that's what we've done, right? A few clicks and you're producing sports professional debate content on a platform. So I think it will end up being that way in terms of ease of use. And some of these younger creators that are blowing up on YouTube and TikTok, et cetera, they're going to want that new form of content to go from one level to the next in terms of professionalism and the content that they're able to produce. So I really do see it heading that way. And I think, you know, maybe in 10 years, we're not going to be looking up to these big time media personnel as people that we love and want to listen to every day. We want to be able to pick and choose anyone that we're a big fan of and, and want to consistently listen to. So to have that community all unified on one platform, 
I think it's going to be a really, really cool thing to see for the sports industry. Um, people get tired of Skip Bayless and Stephen A. They want something new. They want something fresh. They want someone young who brings a lot to the table and um, suits their style of content. So to be able to have a self-serve model where you can just go in and search for that person, um, I think it makes a lot of sense in terms of where the industry's headed. Sure. Speaking more to the industry as a whole, uh, do you see, and I, and I know you come from a VC background, so maybe you can come at this from like where you think some of the money is going, but I always think a sports creator myself, like what the value for me would be to be on a linear distribution platform like ESPN, you know, not, not saying that there's an offer on the table, but I still have this like dream as many kids do to like be on ESPN or be on sports center or be on the radio, you know, like be on the local news, even though I know I'm reaching more people than I probably would with a local radio show or I'm reaching more people than I would be getting on the local news here in Minneapolis, but there's still like the allure of the tr tradition and all of it. Um, do you think for creators, there's still a benefit in the next 15 years for that linear distribution or those traditional brands? Or do you think, you know, we're entering an age where those aren't really needed. Those, those traditional brands aren't really needed in the context of creators having a career. Yeah. So I think what the current brands or networks are doing for creators is just allowing them to produce relevant content for them, even if it's not necessarily them having a show or them officially being a part of the company, but they're saying, hey, you produce really good content on TikTok. I want you to bring in a younger audience and keep doing what you're doing, whether that's a get ready with me video or whether that's them breaking down something trending for an ESPN or for a FanDuel. I think that's where it really lies for creators in terms of, I can still work for these major brands, but I'm gonna do what I keep doing um, and just sort of produce content under that branding, that logo, et cetera. So I think that's probably the best way to get involved for, for creators still looking to have ties to those bigger names. Yeah, Ty, I think, I think like the sex appeal of being on an ESPN show or being the local news is kind of it's like sh it's weirdly shifting to the other platforms and so while it used to be incredibly interesting and really cool to be on ESPN or on SportsCenter I think it's more so or increasingly interesting or cool to be featured on ESPN's Instagram account or TikTok account or whatever whatever other social channel that they might have as opposed to being on their um, traditional broadcast channels. Yeah, and, and maybe the question is, like, the other way. Like, if you talk about creators being courted to a traditional brand, if, sure. if, you want to, if you want to talk about where the leverage is, let's say that the creators have the leverage and these brands increasingly don't have the leverage, like, what appeal does a, does a traditional distribution, you know, channel have to a creator that is already reaching hundreds of millions of people? Is Cash. Sure, Cash. but, like, you, you, yeah. I agree with you, Jake, but even so, like, that's increasingly becoming a harder proposition to justify as you see ESPN laying off hundreds of people and you know, yep. all the rest. Well, that's, that's why the like that part of the industry is dying. And the, the, right. the new part of it is, is becoming more relevant. Like it's just, it, it's just, it's just cash baby. And, uh, there are people that will, will trade the cash for distribution any day of the week. I mean, you look at like the Joe Rogan deal cut off his distribution arm a little bit. You look at, uh, the Howard Stern, podcast going on to Sirius XM probably 10, 15 years ago now at this point. Totally cuts off the distribution and the cost potential of the show, but 
very beneficial to the network and very lucrative for for everybody involved. So, um, yeah. Anyways, should we do yeah. one of these debates? Yeah, sure. I would say la last point there. Just like think about the legacy talent on ESPN or on the major networks. Like they're probably looking for the people that they want to stick around to be very digitally native and also be you know almost a creator in themselves on these platforms. So. I think as they think about who's our next person that we want to onboard, that's going to be a big deal is, are they engaging with their audience on social platforms? And if so, how good are they, how good are they at doing so? Yeah, I, I completely agree. Okay, let's launch into a couple of debate topics before we uh, have to let you go, Chris. So I would say the, the hottest topic in the, uh, in the sports world right now has to be the, the Taylor Swift, uh, Travis Kelsey drama. And we talked about this in last week's episode, but there certainly is a dialogue emerging now. And I imagine as we get into the third week, we're recording this the week before the fifth week of the NFL. So I'm not sure what Taylor's plans are to come here to Minnesota, actually. I find it unlikely, but let's say... She'll be here. Okay, <laughs> she, okay well, let's say she is here, um, the <laughs> sports epicenter of the world. I, I feel like we will have then reached a fever pitch of people being like, okay, we're a little oversaturated on Taylor Swift content. Travis Kelsey actually just came out on his own podcast saying like, you know, the coverage of this, like, Maybe we've gone a little overboard here. Curious to get your thoughts, Chris, on how you think the NFL, the sports media world has been balancing this Taylor Swift coverage. Uh, do you think they've done a good job? Has it been too much, too little? I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, like, honestly, it's great for Travis Kelsey. Uh, I know his following has shot up since this entire thing. So I think it's it's also interesting for the NFL, right? Because they're getting a new fan base strictly tuning into the game just to see a quick flash of Taylor after after a touchdown. So in terms of the coverage, I think they're spot on. Like Taylor Swift literally gives people heart attacks when they go to her concert. So uh, just having her, you know, involved in the NFL in some way, I think is pretty beneficial for, for everyone. You know, jersey sales, uh, viewership, etc. Um, I don't necessarily care that much that they're dating or about the whole story in general, but I think just mixing those worlds of sports and pop culture is is inevitable, especially when it's two big names like this. So I think the coverage has been great, honestly. It's what people want to see. It's what people want to react to and talk about. So the more the merrier, and I'm sure there'll be so much more to come. Yeah, we, we talked about it in, the, in the context of like growing the pie and how a lot of the people that you hear complain about it are these like people that want to see every touchdown and every catch put across their feed. And yeah. the NFL, you know, we, we come at it from a marketing standpoint, like the NFL has some obligation to not do that because it would be too boring and it would be like oversaturate. Like you can put too much red meat out into, into the world, right. And like touchdowns and football highlights are like red meat. And I understand the NFL is a football league, but it's also an entertainment property. And this relationship is very entertaining, especially to a, different subset of people that aren't always looking for the red meat. So if the NFL can grow the pie and still put out the same number of football highlights, but now also put out 10 pieces of content that serve a, to a totally different audience, I think it's almost their duty as an organization to do that and not like uh, let that opportunity pass them by. Yeah, I'm not going to go hard and debate you on that one. I think it's it's just what they literally need to do, right? Like if you have yeah. people in your ear saying Flash of Taylor, you're going to do it and it's going to just completely boost up numbers across the board so right uh, the question the question that they need to to figure out the answer to is when the dimish, diminishing returns set into effect right and so it's they're they're allocating 
15 minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever it is of airtime to this storyline. And now that we're a few weeks into it, it's starting to lose its luster a little bit. Fewer people are carrying. All the people that have moved over to see it have moved over to see it. And so they need to figure out, okay, do we allocate our airtime to this or do we allocate it to something else um, while it's happening at the same time? Like I, I thought it was very interesting. DeMar Hamlin came back last week. Really big storyline. Didn't hear much of it. Yeah. Um, this this just kind of overrode that a little bit. And may, maybe that was intentional. Maybe they didn't want people to know that he was coming back. But um, they they have they, they definitely have something to figure out there uh, in the next two weeks or so from a communications perspective. Yeah, I would say so. Chris, another one here. We, we talk a lot about emerging sports. Um, I, I think Jake and I have had the argument before of what would be considered the fourth major sport in America, um, maybe even increasingly the third major sport. I think the NFL and the NBA are, are pretty squarely one and two. I think there's an argument to be made for three through eight at this point. Um, you give me your top four, or I guess give me your, you know, maybe your, your second to pass the NFL and NBA um, and, and give us one that you think is is coming that could unseat the traditional ones that we might be thinking of. Yeah. I agree. I think NBA and NFL are, are kind of a lock. Um, and then, you know, it's funny when we were launching the product originally, this was a constant conversation of just what's emerging and how can we kind of differentiate ourselves. I think Formula One has done an amazing job, not only at the races, but just with Drive to Survive and just their digital presence. They are just posting the best content to to consume for new fans and new entrants into that space. So I really think F1 will continue to grow pretty quickly. UFC is another one that's done a really, really good job of just really building up a dedicated fan base and making it entertaining as possible to watch those fights. I mean, even if you're not a UFC fan, you're probably aware of a, of a big card that's coming up and, and you're more inclined to tune in. So I think they do a really great job promotion-wise. Um, third sport... Uh, you know, NHL is tough because if you weren't an NHL fan, it's kind of tough to convert. But I do think in, in terms of fan bases, they're, they're doing a better job of, of growing that audience. Aside from that, you know, I think it's going to be kind of a, a race to the top for some of these other emerging sports. You have things like tennis, golf. I'll, actually, golf I'll kind of throw in the mix. They've done a really good job of making things more entertaining. Um but yeah, those are probably the main ones that come to mind in terms of just competing with the big dogs. Ty, here's the reality. Uh, baseball is three, still <laughs> still in a huge business. I mean, you, you can say, okay, it's declining. It's not America's pastime anymore, but they are on the 98th floor of a 100-floor building, whereas everybody else is just trying to walk their way up to the second floor. Uh, four is going to be soccer and maybe hockey at five maybe maybe sure. but but yeah. but but i think that lacrosse will will uh will take over hockey in about 15 years yeah that's i mean that one's tough because i i agree with your rankings i think there's cause to be optimistic about baseball especially given the attendance numbers being better than they expected i think they're projecting something like a six percent increase and it ended up being it's not it's not optimal over it's this, 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 this is the reality like totally yeah and i think the business side is huge like those yeah, businesses are very solid well, well there's like there's a conversation about like how i would honestly honestly i was about the direction of the business you know sure I mean? sure but i like i would i would argue against mba at two because a lot of those teams lose money and a lot of money 
Sure. But it's kind of like an ends to the means, you know, it's like, uh, I think once they wanted to stop losing money, they could stop losing money and they're doing it as a, as a growth mechanism right now. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to, I'm not an owner of an NBA team, but I don't want to be stroking a $200 million check every year to pay off the debts, the team. Sure. I I understand. Sorry, Chris. I I just want to attack it, not attack, but get after his, his point of hockey and lacrosse. I feel like that competition will be wagered in the content space. Like I think if, yeah, I think as sports, they're both pretty niche. Like I think their ceiling is probably pretty low relative to a baseball, a soccer and a basketball, football, but in their ability to like effectively communicate stars, build storylines, create really compelling content is probably where they're going to win. I don't think the, you know, the, the physical on field product will be better or worse per se. It'll just be their ability to communicate that. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, I was just going to add in too that it really depends if you're talking about it just in the U.S. or on a global scale. Because if we go global scale, then you know maybe soccer does get bumped up to number one, or sports like even cricket come into play. So sure. uh, U.S. specifically, I think we're we're rocking with uh, NFL, NBA, um, and sure, Jake, I'll throw in MLB there too. But uh, yeah, I think those are, are the cash cows or will be the cash cows. Um, and in terms of just dedicated fan bases, I don't think they're going anywhere. NBA yeah. is a bleeding sheep in this debate. <laughs> I, I see it more as like the the tech startup that is just in user acquisition mode right now. Like obviously right. it's a huge business. They made $10 billion last year. I, I think the point of them losing money is to acquire stars, make stadium improvements, spend on marketing, and that's all to capture more market share effectively, yeah. right? Most, and if most, they wanted to, most, most startups aren't losing money after 50 years. That's fair. And I, I don't think they're a startup in that sense. Maybe they're just in a startup phase, uh, in, in a growth phase. I do think it's interesting, Chris, you brought up something like cricket. Um, Jake and I deal a lot in rugby. There's a lot of international sports that are huge, like probably top five sports if you took out the American market. Um, but they're just, for whatever reason, not big here in the U.S. And I think recently, like in the last two or three years, you've seen renewed efforts to conquer what is the final frontier for sports like cricket and like rugby to say like, hey, these are massive sports in the biggest markets in the world, but for some reason have not been able to saturate the United States. Do you, do you think, Chris, there's something about the U.S. that just doesn't you know, jive well with introducing new sports? You know, we've seen it work a little bit with lacrosse, but lacrosse is not even as big globally as cricket and rugby are, but still it seems to be having more success than, than those other sports. Yeah, I think it's probably just, you know, to be a big fan of a sport, usually you have to be comfortable playing it and growing up playing it, seeing it around you. So that disconnect probably makes it harder for fans to just want to jump in as a as a viewer and as a fan on TV and even on social. So if it's not around you and you're not seeing it and you're not familiar with the culture, um, it's tough to really kind of have that sense of attachment to those leagues or those key sports. So I think that's probably the main reason, but I could be wrong. I mean, I'd love to see some, like I, I love trying something new, learning something new, playing a new sport. So if they were to take off in the U S like bring it on the more, the merrier. Sure. Sure. I love it. Okay. Chris, we don't want to keep you too long. Could you shout out where people can, uh, can find you and, and live take? Yeah. So live take is available on the app store. Feel free to download there. Check it out. 
you can find me um, pretty much anywhere, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, um, always at Live Take Sports for all those social platforms too. Um, and yeah, I mean, we, we just want people to have the most fun they can using the product, developing that skill set. And, uh, you know, got two smart guys in front of me who are really on top of things in the industry. So really appreciate you bringing me on. There must be two guys in the room with Chris because we are not these guys. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take the compliment, Chris. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, you got it, guys. All right, Jake, we're back and we'll be dusting off one of the original game formats we played on this show. Okay. And we're going to do, be doing a draft. So expansion talk is hot in the streets right now. The WNBA just announced its expansion into San Francisco mm-hmm. and teased a second city, possibly mm-hmm. Portland. Ooh. And the NFL has had the Jaguars play two games consecutively in London, which is the first time they've ever done that, possibly hinting at international expansion. And two cities in the MLB just recently restated their desires for an expansion club to come to their city. So on mm-hmm. that note, we'll be drafting the best cities for an MLB expansion franchise. And since I came up with the idea, Jake, you get to start. All right. Well, let's start by going international. I'm going to go directly to Mexico City. That's a great one. And that was certainly on my list. Do you any <laughs> reason why? Well, I mean, it, it, baseball is such a big part of Central America. It is, I don't know this for certain, it's probably the biggest city inside of the geographic North America that doesn't already have a Major League Baseball organization within it and I know that the government is committed to baseball within yeah. within Mexico um they 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 are investing a lot of money from from a government level into into the sport and so um knowing that knowing the fan base that already exists there knowing the level of baseball that's already being played there I think they would uh they'd be very open to the idea of having an MLB team there and the NFL has tested games there. I think Major League Baseball's maybe had a game or two down there. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, but that would probably be my number one overall pick. I think so. It's also a very young city. It's a growing city. Mm-hmm. The city is growing with a lot of American influence. There's been a lot of, uh, to your point about the government incentivizing things, a lot of like desire. We're for, the best. And we're the best. So Yeah, a lot of desire for like young Americans to come down and live and work in Mexico City. Um, it's also still in a reasonable time zone. I think that's a benefit. Like yeah. it feels like it, it feels like an international city that's not across in London, you know, so you're reaching an entirely different demographic. So I think that's a, uh, that's a home run first pick for my first pick. I'm going to be going international as well, but maybe not as international as you and select Montreal. Ooh. And so they've actually had a team before from Bonjour. 69 to 04. And it is the. Uh, one of the largest cities, I, I would have to double check Mexico City's population, but Montreal has 4.3 million people. Let's look and so it is up there. Montreal, I assume also with Mexico City, is one of the largest North American cities without a professional American sports team. And it's international in a sense that it's very you know French influence in the province of Quebec. And I think a lot of, uh, you know, tying in a lot of that international like appeal would be helpful. I think the biggest thing it has going for it is it had a baseball team before, and there's sure. sort of this renewed vigor for a baseball team to go back there. And I think the, uh, I think when you have that second wave of enthusiasm, it's oftentimes stronger than the first wave. And so, big international city feels like a good fit for MLB. For the record, Mexico City population eight point eight five million. That's huge. I mean, that's like New York level almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's big. 
It's a big city. Um, but yeah, I think Montreal is a good pick. I, you know what? The, so the the rest of my list has, and probably the rest of any list ever has a team in it that is not a major league baseball team, and and there there are baseball teams all over the country: Triple A, Double A, Single A. Um, there's partner league baseball teams, of course, and I'm gonna plop a team down in Louisville. Um, there is already one there, but I'm, I'm going to basically like level up the existing team in Louisville. I think it's the Louisville Bats is the name of the team. And I mean, with, with a brand like Louisville Sluggers down in, in, in there, like that's, that's such a core component of, of baseball, I think. And, uh, that'd just be a cool place to have a baseball team, I think. I think so. I, I think it's also smart to just follow the wake of wherever MLB has AAA teams because those seem to be like really appealing markets for them. We just saw this with Las Vegas. Sure. I think Louisville's a, a natural second fit. Um, I think it's also great to get some like Southern geographic influence. Like baseball, obviously, not primary, a lot like, of baseball. Yeah, I mean, professional baseball in the South. Yeah, the South, Southeast. The Bible Belt does not have a lot of professional baseball for some reason. No. So that's a not a or, not a or any pick. or any professional sports. It's true. A little teaser for maybe a pick that I have later on. My second pick, however, uh, not in the Bible Belt, actually on the complete opposite side of the country. I think it's a city that has a quirky vibe that seems to embrace baseball well. And I they, they are a really passionate fan base for the one professional sports team that they do have, uh, being an NBA team. And so my second pick is going to be Portland. Mm. I think they are always a, a team floated to have some sort of expansion team. I know they're not the biggest city in the world, as you probably looked that up right now, but it seems like, especially around the Trailblazers, these are like diehard, diehard fans. And I think when you have such a committed fan base, especially in a sport of baseball, where you need to draw millions of people, and oftentimes those millions of people over the course of the season are the same people because you have a game happening five days a week, uh, it's important to have a, a fan base that's committed and doesn't have a lot else going on. No offense to Portland. So with that being... Understood. I, I think Portland will be my second pick. The Portland Pickles, a fun, exciting brand up there of baseball, so. uh, independent there's baseball. A great, there's a great uh, documentary. Yeah, yeah go, you go ahead. The better the batters of baseball. Bastards yeah. of baseball. Yeah, a, a fantastic story worth watching. The, the synopsis is Kurt Russell, the actor, his dad, Bing Russell, also an actor, although not as successful, uh, moved up to Portland and started a independent baseball team basically after attempting to get a minor league team put in portland was told no started an independent team literally the only independent team the only independent team so he had to play other minor league teams and the team was known for these wild promotions and very like you know if if anybody here is familiar with independent baseball i'll say savannah bananas although they weren't that crazy but they sort of had like these early inklings of what a you know live fun entertainment product of baseball could be um, and then they also created a really successful baseball team to the extent that they were competing against minor league clubs and beating them consistently. And they got so successful that MLB came in after not wanting to put a minor league team in Portland and said, you know what, we'll actually buy the rights to this team because you've done such a good job growing it. So a fantastic documentary. And I think there's kind of a fun baseball culture up there for that reason. All right. Give me Sacramento. Okay. Can you explain? No, I just... Kind of picking a team on the West Coast that okay. was in California. And my initial thought was, what if we just plopped a team in Oakland? <laughs> and then I, I thought, mean, 
then I thought, I don't know. I don't know. Like, it's not a bad idea. Yeah, it, it, it's an idea for sure. Yeah. But um, I don't know. Figured Sacramento. I've heard of the city before. They also have, uh, they have the Sacramento Kings kind of a yeah. cool thing. There's a lot of teams out there in California, though. I there think that would be the the There are the a lot of people team. out there, though. Yeah. People in California. A lot of people. Okay, well, you left me up for my third pick. And to your point earlier about places with not a lot of professional sports teams, I think Iowa is a slept-on mm. part that is kind Don't of sleep. like torn apart in terms of professional sports fandom. Again, I feel like, in my experience with the people of Iowa, if you were to give them one professional sports team, they would be all over that professional sports team. And so <laughs> I'm going to put a team in Des Moines, which is the largest city in Iowa, and finally give Iowa the professional team they deserve. To our earlier conversation about regional sports networks, Iowa is blacked out of like six to seven to eight different professional teams just because they fall in this cross-section of a bunch of different baseball markets. And so I'm not even sure who they really root for down there. I think a lot of them are Cubs fans, but I'm sure, again, they're, they're split in their allegiance, maybe based on what part of the state they're at but I think giving them their own team could uh could really fire them up again I, I come back to this theme of like you have to have so many people come out to a baseball game every single year that you have to have a really passionate fan base willing to you know make multiple trips to the ballpark and I think the fantastic people of Iowa would be willing to do that population of Des Moines Iowa do you want to you care to hear it it's really low I know it's like 212,000 yeah and 31 people that's you know idea. it's you know it's bad when they they have and thirty one people and thirty one people. <clears throat> That's fine. It, it's it, it, the reason I pick Iowa is because it's the state's team. I would probably call them the Iowa something. You know, like similar to how it's not the the Iowa the Minnesota Twins. Yeah, so the Iowans. It would it would be it would be a team for the for the whole state. All right, all right. And then maybe that'd be the maybe that'd be a team in the whole state. Um, uh, my pick here. Now, I'm going to need a little bit of support on this. I have no idea if this has been confirmed or denied. And an expansion team in Nashville. Okay. Uh, and there, yeah. there are big murmurs of that Always, happening. There's always there murmurs of Nashville. Actually, a, a website and a group of people called the MLB Music City Collective or something. MLBmusiccity.com. Check that out. It's a group of people committed to bringing Major League Baseball to Nashville. Um, so that could be fun. I see them as like the uh, the little sister to Vegas. Like they have a lot of people that are traveling there for, for fun. Obviously have the Tennessee Titans that are um, that are right there, and they're investing a lot in the infrastructure there. So you never know. I think so. I, uh, I'm doing a video actually about um, the sphere in Las Vegas mm. uh, when I go out there next week. And – just trying to like formulate a hypothesis about how live sports mix with Vegas with the sphere sort of being this representation of Las Vegas. Um, and my takeaway to spoil some, the thesis for the video for people is like live sports is a great way to sort of fill in the cracks of the type of person who might not want to come to Las Vegas, you know, where if you're not into gambling or concerts or live music or magic shows, maybe you're into live sports and that's yeah. just another reason for you to come to Vegas. I think the same can be said to Nashville. And the argument could certainly be made that there's so much going on there that you're not going to draw well. I don't think that's always a concern for people, especially if you're an owner that gets their stadium built with a lot of taxpayer money. Like you're just fine to have a stadium that's mostly paid for and 
you can draw as many people as as you want, and you're you, you know you're going to have this natural base of people that are in the city anyway. So yeah, and I mean don't don't sleep on Vegas in terms of like a normal residential community either. Like the like the city well, is you, cer- the city is certainly one thing, but there are a ton of people that live in the in like the immediate surrounding area of Vegas, and then nothing else. Like there is literally nothing else to do other than the things that are within that bubble. Well, I think that nothing else is the issue. So if uh an MLB team moves to Vegas, it would be the smallest TV market for any MLB team. Sure. And it's far and away the smallest market that has a uh, three professional teams. Once baseball moves there, it'll have hockey, uh, football, and, and baseball. And so maybe the same could be said about Nashville. I don't know how big it is. I can't imagine it's much bigger. There's probably a larger surrounding area to Nashville since it's not in the middle of the desert. But um, <laughs> all, all concerns. Yeah, all, all, all concerns. That, was that your fourth pick, Jake? I picked, uh, who did I pick? I picked Mexico City, Louisville, Sacramento, and I just picked Nashville, so that'd be four. Okay, great. Nashville was on my list, by the way, but I have one Sorry. more selection here. That's Got all right. Uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. Interesting. To the point of following the the wake of MLB minor league teams, uh, there's a, another infamous minor league team out there in the Raleigh-Durham area, the, the Durham Bulls, and the... Uh, I think just the historic baseball culture of that area. I, I think you also get the benefit. I don't know why teams necessarily do this. Maybe it's just because it's not a big enough region. But whenever you put a team in North or South Carolina, it's just kind of dubbed as the Carolinas. And you get access to two states Both. as a fan base. Both. Yeah. So whether you put a team in Charlotte, which I think is fair, I'll just pick Raleigh because of the existing baseball culture that's there. You get this access of like two two states as a as a built-in fan base yeah okay how do you feel about your list i feel pretty good i have one sleeper pick and that would be salt lake city yeah that was on a list i or a lot of how long was your list i did no no no, not my list i i I read other people's lists and took and took my favorites and that was on a lot of other people's lists okay so you did a lot of other you did a a mock draft (laughs) i prepared jake i I prepared for this episode did not do a mock draft. That's okay. Another popular one I hear people talk about, San Antonio, just for like another professional sports team. Um, although a lot of times I, I feel like I hear that with football, but yeah. I think baseball, the the concept could, could hold. Okay. All right. Well, that's well, a draft. We'll let, the peop- we'll let the people decide how we did. We'll let the people decide how we did. In any case, we'll be back next week with more in sports and business. Thank you to Aaron Ryan McFarland for producing this episode. We'll see you guys next week.